Today on The Black Goat, we discuss a recent paper about how communicating uncertainty affects people's trust in science and scientists. And a letter writer follows up with an update and advice about getting a job for a non-academic partner. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava. I'm here with Alexa Tullet and Samin Vizier. And Samin, you posted a picture the other day on Twitter, which uh, was noteworthy for two reasons. It was a picture that your partner took. One was that you were staring at your phone, and you seemed to think this was surprising, um, which, of course, it isn't to anyone who ever hangs out with you. But the other is I noticed your hair has gotten long again, or it's getting longer. You had that like awesome shortcut a year ago. So uh, like, what's what's going on with uh, with the hairstyle these days? So I was ahead of the curve. Like everybody has mullets now because you know they're not cutting their hair. <laughs> but I was doing the mullet thing, so I I grew out my hair from a short haircut, which means that like the back is way longer. So I have this like year long mullet going on now. And I'm wondering like when all this gets better and I go get a haircut, if they're gonna be like, oh yeah, coronavirus, or if they're gonna be like, no, this is definitely <laughs> pre-coronavirus. Like, I, no you know, as, as somebody that grew up in New Jersey, I would not call that a mullet. And, okay. and you know, I, I had a I What had do a you call the like much longer in the back then? I mean, I don't it think you're just- You have to have like a short, like yeah. man haircut in the front. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, if it's like a buzz on top or like a, a, you know, if you can see your bangs sticking up in the right in the front and the rest is the same length like that, yeah. I would call that a mullet. But uh, yeah. yeah, yours is just a little but as, you could asymmetric. get your haircut <laughs> into a mullet if you wanted. That's true. I'm a prime, yeah, in a prime position to do that. <laughs> um, yeah, I, uh, it's, it's interesting watching what, what's going on with everybody's hair right now. We were on a Zoom call with uh, my my wife's family and like everybody had, like a lot of the the men had beards who, who don't normally have beards. I mean, there were people like me who've had beards for a while, but it's like, I'm gonna be at home. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna grow a beard. I've actually thought about going the other direction. I've, I've, I've contemplated like, should I try a mustache, like just to see what that would look like? I think it would be a little scary, but uh, it has crossed my mind. So wait, I'm okay. I understand why people have long hair right now. Why are people growing beards? Like, I assume that you have everything you need to shave your beard in your own home, right? Yeah, um, I think it's just, that's a really good question. I, I feel like it's something, I think it's it's something that a lot of guys just are interested in experimenting with and maybe it's because even though like you're doing zoom calls it feels different than having to like look like well you're not you might, like meeting new people right? yeah yeah you don't have to look presentable and and so there's there's mm -hmm. a transitional phase where it tends not to look very good and if you've never had one before you don't know if the endpoint is going to look any good either and so um uh yeah i think that's that's probably what it is uh-huh yeah i think you're right I'm amazed at people who will cut each other's hair, except if it's just like trimming long hair or something. But like, I've I've taken stitches out of my partner's head, but I won't <laughs> cut his hair. <laughs> I cut my so son's hair. That seems much riskier to me. I cut my son's hair and it was, because I've been cutting my own hair for, I guess about 10 years, but my hair is pretty easy to cut because it's just clippers. It's just different lengths of clippers. Yeah. But my son has like much longer hair. I had to use scissors on it. I, I have to say it was, I certainly like when we're able to go to stylists again, I, I will definitely send him back to a stylist. But uh, I was I was like, I didn't mangle that as terribly as I could have. I don't know. I'd be so scared. Oh, it's one of those things. I, when I started cutting my own hair, I realized like I had this, it was because it, it was something I'd never like it's one of those things that like you don't even do a little bit like most at least for me and I think this is true of a lot of people like I just never took a scissors to any part of any of my hair at all and you mm -hmm. just have this idea because you sit there and somebody does and you can't see what they're doing and they have to have a certificate and it's in a special place and so it feels like this like complicated difficult pro process and I will say having done my son's hair that I have a I mean, I already had an appreciation, but I definitely like it renewed my appreciation for like what a good skilled stylist can do because I was just like hacking at it. But mm -hmm. um, but no, I mean, for for my hair, it's like every once in a while I'll go to a barber 
and I'll be like, that's yeah, fine, but I don't, you know, I keep my hair so short, it doesn't, um, uh, you know, when, when your hair is this short, it doesn't make all that much of a difference going to a professional. I don't know. I don't know, like Alexa, I, I'm not sure that I would, uh, I mean, I guess if it was just like trimming ends hair off, hair but seems uh, fancy. yeah, you've got, it's... you've got really nice hair. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> uh, it's weird because you would, I think, you would think that my hair would be easy to cut because it's just long, you know? Um, but I've definitely got some ter terrible haircuts. Um, and I think that I consistently go to the same person to get my haircut because um, I think that she does a really good job. Um, yeah, she does all kinds of stuff. She like puts the layers in and then she gets the front shorter than the back. Um, so actually I think I would be pretty reluctant to cut my own hair because I think that it could end up looking pretty bad. I was reading, I was reading some like advice about haircutting before I did my son. Um, it was interesting. It was saying like with, with straight hair, everything's out there. Like if you mess it up, cause straight hair, you're, you're going to see. And I think a lot of times we don't realize like things like layers and whatever, how much of a difference they make. It was funny cause it was saying with, with curly hair, it's like, um, uh, curly hair hides mistakes better. But if you make the mistake of cutting someone's hair when it's wet, and you don't realize how much it'll like spring it's back spring up and curl. Yeah. You'll like make them look like It'll Ronald McDonald. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when I have long hair, I will never pay much for a haircut. Like my mom trims my hair when I have long hair because you just, you could do anything to my hair and you can't mm -hmm. tell. Like it's super uneven yeah. and frizzy and whatever anyway. But when I had short hair, it made a really big difference. Yeah. I got some good haircuts and some bad haircuts. Uh-huh. Yeah. But bad haircuts were my fault. Like, I just don't know how to communicate what I want. Like, the bad haircuts, they did exactly what I asked. And I was like, oh, yeah, no, that was a bad idea. <laughs> yeah, there's all this terminology, like, you know, do I want a taper? Do I want a fade? Do I want layers? Mm -hmm. Do I want an undercut? Like, what are these things? Yeah, and, and then when they ask you, like, yeah. how how short do you want it on the sides? And I'm like, a half inch? I don't know. And they're like, that's really, <laughs> really short. And I'm like, it is? It seems pretty long. <laughs> like, yeah. I went to a barber one time and it was, it was great. This was when I was on sabbatical in LA and I don't even think I said that I was like only in town temporarily, but, but when I was done, he like said to me, he's like, if you want this haircut again, here's what to tell the next person. And he gave oh. me like the, the barber terminology for it. And I was like, that, yeah. that is a, that, that is a nice thing, especially because like he could have not said that. And then I would have had to go back to him to like get the same haircut. But, um, because it is there there's all this like weird terms for things and i don't know what any of that means i still don't mm -hmm. quite know what the difference is between a taper and a fade I, mm -hmm. maybe somebody knows can write us no and explain it to us sanjay you have a good situation with the like the like salt and pepper beard and then <laughs> and then the black hair on your head i feel like that's like what a lot of guys are going for um well i mean i maybe this is obvious that i i didn't do anything to get the salt into the salt and pepper. It just kind of happened. <laughs> I was but hoping I, that you dyed your beard, but <laughs> I no, like I realized, um, cause I, I grew up my beard really long in the fall, just like I've had it about the same length for a long time. And in the fall, I was like, I'm going to grow out a longer beard and see what happens. And it was kind of cool. But then I, the, um, the, the salty parts, like it's weird. Like there's whole areas that are gray or white. And then there's areas that are different. And, when it grows too long, like the pr relative proportions make me look older or younger. And so I realized like, oh, I need, if I let it get too long, I have this like massive gray hair and it starts to look like Santa cheeks with this weird. It just like, looks like you tried um, to drink the bleach, but you accidentally <laughs> spilled it on your beard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I also have like weird, this weird patch on one of my cheeks where um it's like a dark spot that comes down and so it looks like i have a gigantic mutton chop if it's the wrong and so i like i'm really self-conscious about like my one side giant mutton it's just because like it starts turning gray below that so even if it's all the same length it it just I, it looks like i have one giant mutton chop on one side and i'm like do i need to just like can i just live with this until that all turns you live in here so sanja's gonna like, have a giant cool. mutton chop someone's <laughs> gonna get a mullet what are you going to do, Alexa? <laughs> yeah, good question. I mean, those are both like very bold haircuts. I don't know. Um, yeah, I'd have to really go all in. 
maybe like a mohawk or something. Yeah, that's what mm-hmm. I was thinking. One of those, like the really like not not just like the the faux hawk, but like the the one no, with like foot bullshit. and a half long yeah, spikes. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The one where you have to like, have you ever seen how like people that have the the like foot long spikes, they have to like lie on their side and spray it. Cause that, you know, they, they won't stand up on their own when you're right, starting. Right, so, right. so I've seen, I've seen pictures of people doing this where they like, they like shape it out into the spikes and then, and they're like lying on their side until it dries. And so they spray it. I think so. I don't know. I, I, I mean, I, I've only seen pictures of, I haven't seen what like the actual process looks like. I'm sure there are YouTube videos. With it, like, that is super interesting. That sounds like a quarantine project. <laughs> but, <laughs> there we go. It sounds, uh, you, it sounds like your quarantine project. You're the only one of us that has enough hair to do it. I bet yeah. that blowtorch you ordered could come in handy. <laughs> <laughs> just <laughs> meld all the hairs together so you just literally have a spike instead of like hair is shaped into a spike. That would be pretty awesome. Does hair, I guess hair doesn't melt, it burns, does it? Well, anyway, maybe you could. Oh, I'll blow, report back. The blowtorch and some plastic or something to just like yeah. form it. Anyway. Well, should we, uh, should we get to our letter? Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. So um, the letter that we're doing this week is um, a little different than usual. So this is somebody who had written us a letter previously um, about advocating for a non-academic partner. Um, and then we had responded to this letter on episode 20, or sorry, episode 64. Um, and then this person sort of emailed us with an update um, on things that they wish they had known um, known during the time that they were advocating for their non-academic partner. Um, so this is sort of a case where the person who's writing the letter is, is maybe giving more advice than, than we're going to end up giving. Um, but I thought it was an interesting letter. Dear the Black Goat, thanks so much for reading my letter. I really appreciated it. Since then, my partner has gotten a great job, not at my university, but also not too long of a drive. We are very relieved and looking forward to house hunting. Here are some things I wish I'd done differently, either in the negotiation process or once we got here, or that I would recommend to others in this situation. One, if there is any chance a partner can keep their job and work remotely, even on a part-time basis, I would consider that. That will prevent a gap on their resume while they were looking and bring in some money. On the other hand, this might make it look like the partner has not moved, which might be confusing to recruiters and their algorithms. Two, find out as soon as possible what the special benefits are, like at the job. This is also really important for self-employed partners who might rely on access to your health insurance. How expensive is it for partners to be on health insurance? Do you have to be legally married? I might have negotiated harder on salary if I had known how expensive it would be or tried to get in writing um, that I could have access to other services that might not cost the department any money, such as the university's career office. Three. Don't be afraid to tell people that your partner is looking for a job. A really tough part for me was admitting to my colleagues that we were having trouble with this, but I wish I had started talking to people earlier. You never know um, who might know of an opening, have advice, get credit for recommending someone, or be able to put a partner's resume at the top of a pile. It sucks and it feels super demoralizing, but maybe things would be different or uh, would be different if we had talked to more people sooner. Four. If your chair recommends you talk to someone and that person isn't helpful, make sure you let your chair know that it's not working out. This will give them more information. They might never have had to deal with the situation before as chair. They might also think of other people to talk to or reach out to other chairs who might have dealt with this for previous hires. Thanks, Anonymous. Um, so yeah, one that I thought was interest, um, particularly interesting was the point three, um, to not be afraid to tell people that your partner is looking for a job. Um, yeah, I haven't been in this situation before, but I could imagine that that's sort of like an awkward thing to, um, bring up with people. And maybe it's like sort of hard to know how to ask people, or you feel like you're putting people in a weird position. Um, but yeah, it makes sense that that's sort of, um, I guess you have to sort of like bite that bullet when you're in that position. Yeah. I thought it was, I mean, backing up for a second, I, I thought it was super cool of the letter writer to write in with their experiences about mm-hmm. all this. Cause yeah, we just sort of tossed some advice out into ether and, you know, it's, it's cool to hear from someone who's actually been through this and, and to be able to, to sort of revisit that. Yeah. I, you know, it's interesting. I, I, um, I mean, I can guess some of the reasons, but like, 
it's interesting just the idea of being reluctant to tell people that your partner is looking for a job. I, I kind of wonder where that comes from. Like, I, I think to some extent, at least I know I have this sort of just like kind of personal reservedness about money and finance and those kinds of things. Yeah, to me, just, it feels an, ex- an extension of that. Yeah, like like it just it would feel weird. Like, why would I mention this? Um, and I, you know, like if someone says, "Oh, you should mention it because people will want to help you," then then I might be like, "Oh, oh yeah, of course." But I like I can sort of. So I wonder if that's where it was coming from. Or if there were more specific concerns, like they were, I don't know, worried. I mean, I guess it depends when in the negotiation you bring it up. I could see somebody being worried before the offer is made that if they bring it up, people will be like oh this person's gonna be too hard to move or something like that yeah, it doesn't absolutely. sound like that's what they were talking yeah, about there but yeah mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. um yeah i could also see it being awkward in a in the same way that it's sort of like scary to talk to people about a new relationship or whatever where it's like a bummer to have to tell people bad news all the time or something like that you know what i mean um and so having a lot of people know about uh, something sort of personal, like the status of job applications or whatever can be maybe kind of stressful. And some like on point two where they're like, find out the benefits of the job. And like, if you have to be legally married and stuff, like I would find it so weird to talk to my chair about like, well, do I have to get married to have that or not? And like, then, mm-hmm. yeah, then they might be like, well, why wouldn't you want to get married? And it seems like then it gets into a space where like people, it's like very, very intimate conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, there's probably for people on the other side of this, there's like, there's a lot you can probably do to anticipate that these issues come up and just be proactive and say like, Hey, uh, you know, like after the offer, when it's appropriate to be like, Hey, uh, you know, if you have a partner, let us know. Cause we want to try to help you. Um, because I, yeah, I can imagine all kinds of reasons, just a, a natural reluctance to bring your personal life up and, you know, those kinds of things especially if you have been struggling to be taken seriously on your own merits. Like, I mean, this seems less likely if your partner is in a completely different field, but I could imagine situations where someone like has sometimes been referred to as so-and-so's spouse or something like that. And you're like, no, I just want you to see me as me. And then you have to bring your partner into the conversation about benefits and stuff like that. I can Mm -hmm. see that that would be hard. Yeah. And if I were, I, I don't remember, I, I don't remember the the genders of the two partners, but I could certainly see in this situation, there are all kinds of weird social norms about like men as breadwinners. And and so there might be some, either the people themselves might feel it or they might be worried others would look at it if this is like a woman advocating for her partner, like you're not supposed to have to do that. Men are supposed to take care of themselves, blah, blah, blah. Like there could be weird. And and the the thing you mentioned, Samin, about people feeling like, um, uh, you know, trying to sort of be taken seriously on their own is probably going to be much more of a concern for women than for men. Mm-hmm. And so the, those kind of gender dynamics probably are also going to come up in these situations for sure. And then mm-hmm. if your university helps your partner find a job or if your colleagues do through their personal networks or whatever, and then they might think you are like indebted to them. And then if you like get an outside offer and threaten to leave, they might be like, well, no, we, we helped your partner get it. I don't know. It like brings in all these things that you might want to leave out of the workplace. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that they bring up um, getting access to services like a career office. That's uh, part of why it's interesting. So I, you know, my, my university has, there's actually a person whose job is dual career support. So they're, it's like part of their, it's not the only thing they do, but it's part of their appointment is specifically to be the person that helps in place job placement for partners of hires. And uh, like, I don't know that a lot of people, I think those kinds of positions exist at a lot of places, but I don't know how many people even know that exists. Um, So that's one of those things that like, might be there for you and and when we when we've used it like we have to get a referral from our dean so it's not you know you have to go through a process to to make use of that but it's also interesting yeah that's not something i would have thought of is just like hey as part of the negotiation like this person can go to the career center they can look at the listings they can talk to a counselor or all those other things you know if if that would be helpful that's that's one of those things that yeah like when you're in the negotiation phase 
it's a lot easier to make happen because afterwards, you know, someone's like, blah, 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 student fees play for this or whatever, blah, 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 we can't do it. Whereas in the negotiation phase, a lot of times those things sort of magically disappear. And it's like, oh, yeah, we can make that happen. Just our dean will call your dean and we'll, we'll, do, we'll work it out. Mm-hmm. I also like that they raised this point of, um, you know, potentially your chair might not have had to deal with the situation before. Um, like when I was, when I was starting my job, I really like had no concept of how much experience a chair would have. I just thought chair as like this like authority figure who had this like expertise that was totally mysterious to me. So I would have just assumed that um, that chairs would know how to handle a situation like this and would like um, I guess know all the people to talk to and stuff like that. But chairs are chairs. I mean, in our department for four years sometimes less than that, I think. Um, and so you're only going through a few hiring cycles. Um, so it's like entirely possible that um, a chair might not know the best people to talk to and might like refer you to someone that's not helpful at all. Um, and so hearing from you what's working out and what's helpful and what's not um, could be really useful information to them. And also, yeah, they just might not know um, who the best people to send you to are. Yeah. And, and if they know, if they, if they've, if they think they've given you advice and it hasn't worked and they get that feedback, a a good chair might be like, okay, let me, let me go ask somebody what's a better way to do this. Cause yeah, like I don't, you know, I'm sometimes amazed at how much, how many different things our chair is called on to like address in terms of just like how many different offices, first of all, just how many offices there are at a university. And then like, how many different times he, you know, he needs to either refer someone to this office or that office or contact them himself or whatever. It's just like, there's, there's no way that they did an orientation where they taught everybody all this stuff. And even if they did, there's no way anybody would remember it. It's just like from years of experience, he knows. And so if somebody's new at the job, they're not going to know this stuff and, and they might need that nudge to be like, Oh, I, I need to support a partner hire. I haven't done that before. I should go, you know, ask my buddy at the anthropology department who's been in their office for, for years and I think handled one of these last year or whatever, blah, blah, blah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, a lot of, a lot of times people want to help, but they, they don't know that they're not being helpful or that they could be helpful. Mm-hmm. Anything else? I don't think so. Okay. This is a nice situation where the letter writer answered the question. So uh, us talking is just icing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no. And, and uh, it's also just nice that it worked out. Like, that's something else too. We, you know, we get these letters and and sometimes we give people advice and and sometimes people do follow up with us privately, which is super nice. And it's nice to hear either way, but it's, it's, I don't, I don't attribute this necessarily to our advice, but it's just nice to hear (laughs) the situation worked out. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this person figured it out and now they're they're able to be actually helpful that's like that the, there was no hint to this at all but you could totally imagine somebody doing this like okay these guys gave me fucking shitty advice so i'm gonna write <laughs> this letter very nicely explaining how to actually handle the situation um this person did not drop any hints that's what they were doing but maybe they were and they were just extremely diplomatic about it <laughs> uh, cool well uh thank you anonymous for 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 following up letting us know things worked out and for for sharing what you learned um if you would like to write us a letter uh if you have something you'd like to hear us respond to if you have a follow-up on your letter or somebody else's letter uh you've been in a situation like that we love to hear from you um you can email us letters at the blackcoatpodcast.com you can find us on twitter we're at blackcoatpod or on instagram instagram.com slash blackcoatpod facebook.com slash blackcoatpod we are on the web, www.theblackgoatpodcast.com, and we're on iTunes and Stitcher and everywhere fine podcasts are given away for free. Um, so for our main topic today, we wanted to talk about a fairly recent, very recent, I guess, article mm-hmm. published in PNAS, the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science, which is a journal. Am I, do I have to say that if I say PNAS? Do I have to like spell it or does everyone just know what PNAS means? Anyway, um, the article is called The Effects of Communicating Uncertainty on Public Trust in Facts and Numbers. 
Um, and uh, uh, it's, it's about um, uh, uh, some experiments and, and some conclusions about whether communicating uncertainty about science or other kinds of, of data, um, how, how they affect the way people view the numbers themselves and the way they view the sources of those numbers. And Samin, you were the one that, that uh, picked this out. Do you want to maybe uh, um, like sort of give an overview and also mention why you brought this up for us to discuss? Because it was a super interesting article and maybe you can give some background. Yeah, sure. I think I first heard about it. It came across my Twitter feed. I didn't know anything about any of the authors or um, their, work, their past work, except I'd heard of one of the authors and thought their work sounded interesting. And I remembered that I'd been meaning to read some of their work. Um, and it was short and looked really interesting. Um, and then I had mixed feelings about suggesting a PNAS paper because I've recently been made aware, or I think I knew before and I forgot, but I relearned about some of the really bad practices that PNAS engages in as a journal, which don't apply to this article because this was a direct submission, which is like a regular submission, but they have another track called contributed submissions, which is if you're an NAS member, you're allowed up to two contributed submissions a year. You pick your own reviewers and you get them to agree to review before you submit the paper. And then you submit the paper and say, here are my reviewers, which is super bizarre. Like there's no pressure at all there to write a positive review. Um, and I think 25% of the papers are contributed submissions and almost all contributed submissions are accepted. So I feel very sketchy about it. Like they should put that in a separate place to not taint the journal side of PNAS because that's not a journal. That's just like a glossy magazine where people get, to, like famous people get to publish their stuff. So I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know that I would continue picking PNAS papers unless they clean up their act about the contributed submissions track. But okay, putting that aside, this was a direct submission. This was as far as we have any reason to think it was completely peer reviewed the normal way and everything. I mean, in some sense it speaks even better for this because there's that much right. less space that this That's was true. able to compete for. <laughs> you yeah, know, this yeah. is, you know, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's a topic that I find really interesting, especially since having been on the NAS study committee on replication and replicability and reproducibility, we spent a lot of time talking about, the effect of communicating to the public that there may be replicability problems or things like that. And I'd been thinking a lot about like, what role, that is a consideration we should think about, right? We should think about what effects it'll have on public trust in science. What, how big of a consideration should that be? Should that be the determining factor in whether we say that, there, that there's uncertainty when there is? Um, so I, the framing of the paper was interesting to me, like what would they say about where this question fits into the broader equation of when and how we should communicate uncertainty. But also, yeah, I am interested in this effect itself. Like what is the effect of communicating uncertainty? I think a lot of people make a lot of assumptions about how non-scientists react to being told that there's uncertainty in our estimates. And I think those assumptions might be wrong. And especially that I think that we are often quite pessimistic about how people are gonna react to uncertainty to news about like the replication crisis more which is not what they studied but um so the, they did five studies four were online experiments with like vignette type things and one was a field experiment using actual an actual news article on the bbc um and then the experiments they were each a little different so they used slightly different topics where, when they manipulated the information so sometimes it was about unemployment numbers in the uk or sometimes it was about immigration numbers in the uk these were all done in the uk um, and they always had a control condition where they just gave the estimate. Um, and then they had at least one condition where they added numerical uncertainty, usually like a confidence interval or range. Um, and then at least one condition where they added verbal uncertainty, something like the numbers could be somewhat higher or lower or something like that. Um, and they looked at three primary DVs, although they had other DVs as well. Um, so they are, whether the participants perceived more uncertainty in the estimate, whether the participants trusted the estimate less, and whether the participants trusted the source of the data less. And, but they also measured effects on affect, which they didn't report in the main manuscript and said that wasn't their main variable of interest. Yeah, and just to, to make a little, just to give like one example to make it more concrete, for people listening, like one in one of the studies, 
they were giving the UK unemployment. So they were saying uh, the number of unemployed people was estimated to be 1,484,000. So some people just got that. Some people are told it's between 1,413,000 to 1,555,000. And then that was their like numerical certainty, numerical uncertainty condition. And then there was a verbal one where they said it could be somewhat higher or lower. So instead of giving that range, that's just, yeah, to, to just sort of fill out with a, an example. Um, yeah, and kind of the, the, the gist of the findings was that it didn't, didn't have humongous effects on source trust, right? That was one of the big take homes. Mm -hmm. um, communicating uncertainty did raise what people said on a numeric scale of how uncertain are these numbers, mm -hmm. which is kind of, it was, they sort of interpreted that, uh, to me, that was almost like a manipulation check. Um, it's not quite a manipulate or a comprehension check or something. It's, it's like, at least it's something that like, if people, maybe it's, maybe it's not quite that, but if like, if people are being sort of rational and reading what you're writing, they should be a little more uncertain when you communicate uncertainty, maybe or something. Um, I guess maybe you could argue that's not necessarily the case, but yeah, no, it, it, mm -hmm. um, it affected a little bit trust in the numbers, but not a whole lot. It was kind of, uh, yeah. I think words like reasonable or rational is one of the things I wish they had set up more. Like in introduction, right. they didn't tell us what would be the appropriate response for readers. Yeah, like, should they trust the numbers less? Should they trust the source less? And in the discussion too. And they kind of imply some things a few places. Like at the end, they say that um, participants can handle the truth. So the fact that it didn't decrease source trust, trust in the source suggests that people can handle the truth, which seems to me to imply that it would have been bad if mm -hmm. it made people trust the source less, but they don't defend that. Um, so yeah, there's this kind of undertone of like what would be an appropriate reaction and what wouldn't be, but I, I wish they had been a little bit more explicit about what they think about that. What do you guys think about that? Like, so in these examples, right, like giving, um, broader confidence intervals and things like that. How do you think that should affect people's trust in numbers and then trust in the source? You know, it's, it's interesting that, uh, I think maybe this is kind of along the lines of what you're saying, Samin, is that, because it's a Likert scale of trust. And so there's no, um, there's no right answer. Uh, it's, not like, it's not like something that you can calibrate against reality, right? And so you could, it was kind of, this was kind of implicit in the way they talked about it, that it was like the, the, um, the no uncertainty condition that like just the point estimate condition was kind of like what they took as the sort of the reference point. And then when you, and so the question was, are people like, when you communicate uncertainty, is that making people less trustful? But you could, you could easily have framed it with the exact same studies the other way around, which is when we don't give an interval, are people giving too much trust in science, right? And because there's no, and neither one of those is really valid because there's no, there's no objective standard of what's the right amount of trust. So it's only relative between these two conditions. Um, and, and so that was, uh, um, yeah. So, so, I mean, I guess what you can walk away with is it doesn't make a huge difference between the two approaches, but there's, it doesn't, it's not capable of answering like, which one is closer to the correct amount of trust because there's 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 yeah. no criterion i thought the results were really interesting descriptively but i think yeah what to do with them is really is very hard to grapple with um so like the question about trust in numbers at least the one i wrote down from the method section it might not have been the same in every study but at least one study was to what extent do you think this number is reliable and to what extent do you think this number is trustworthy so you mm. could imagine if they had given a very, very big confidence interval. Let's say they said the estimate was 1.4 million, but it could be anywhere from 100,000 to whatever, 3 million yeah. or something like that. Of course, you should think that that number, presumably this number refers to the point estimate, but that's a little bit unclear, is not that reliable and not that trustworthy. And you should yeah. maybe also think the source is not that reliable and not that trustworthy if the best they could do was a confidence interval that includes almost everything. I actually, I sort of disagree with the, like, the, this implications for source trust. So it's not totally clear to me what it means to ask about your trust in a number, right? And so yeah. like like you say, if some if somebody asks you how much do you trust this number, it could be anywhere between zero and a million. Um, like saying I don't really trust that seems reasonable. And um, yeah, you'd think that like your trust should 
go down as the range goes up. Um, but in terms of like trust of the source, I mean, I think it depends a lot on, and, and maybe, maybe in practice, that is true. So like, we're so used to reading papers where people are trying to make claims and often strong claims. And so if somebody is giving you um, a point estimate with a huge confidence interval around it, and that's being paired with pretty confident claims, then I agree, you should definitely um, trust the source less. But in a situation where it, it's a little hard to compare the control condition, from what I remember, the control condition, they don't like, they don't say anything about the range, right? If somebody told me, like, you know, our estimate is like, uh, four plus or minus zero, um, then I might have like less trust in the um, source than I would if it was like something more moderate, you know? So if somebody's actually saying like, I'm a, I'm a hundred percent sure about this thing that doesn't like the number of like tigers in Africa or something like, um, then I might have less trust in the source. Yeah. They talk about the fact that, that some people might've predicted that actually providing information about uncertainty would increase trust mm -hmm. in the source. And so they, they can pretty confidently rule that out in their paradigms, which I think is interesting. And I wonder, yeah, how generalizable that is. Like there's, there must be some conditions under which it might increase trust. And especially like you said, like if the control condition had been, this is the estimate, this is the number we have no uncertainty, right? Right. Right. Then trust might've been lower in that condition, especially if it's something fuzzy that we know is hard to measure exactly. And right. Yeah, we're sort of used to people telling us numbers and like um, that not necessarily implying anything about people's uncertainty, right? Yeah. I mean, this could be taken as like, what are people inferring in the control condition when there's no right. difference with some of the other conditions? We can maybe assume that people are inferring about that amount of uncertainty that's expressed in those other conditions. Right, right. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. I, I also wonder what, you know, the, these numbers feel very disconnected from anything in, in the way mm. this was done. And, you know, I wonder how it would have changed if people had to do something with these numbers or were thinking of the, were certainly to think of the implications of it. So like, for example, when your uncertainty straddles some kind of a decision threshold, that's a very different scenario, right? So if, if you say like, you know, this was from another one of those studies. It was also about unemployment. It was like figures show that unemployment fell by 116,000. That's the certainty condition. And then in one, another one, they give a range. Um, so, I mean, one thing that might be relevant is, is whether the range straddles zero, like whether it's somewhere between rose or fell, people might feel differently because they, they might be more focused on the sort of qualitative direction than, than the sort of numerical and then even more, if, if it was like, oh, we've got this, you know, uh, um, plan that if, if unemployment, uh, you know, falls by a certain amount, we're going to um, roll out a new tax because we, we're going to assume that enough people are employed that it's not going to slow down the economy. And people might, oh, okay. It's like, you know, if now this range, if this range straddles the threshold to like implement this new tax plan or something, that might be different. Um, so it, it is, you know, yeah, like the, the, the sort of practical impact of the uncertainty in these studies was often hard to, not, not only was there no direct literal practical impact, but the, the, these numbers often the ranges they were, they were at were not something that I think, at least in the examples I looked at that I would have been like, oh, it makes a difference if it's at the top or the bottom of this range. Yeah, it's hard because there are things that people don't have intuitions about, but you could argue that that's pretty typical of science reporting or reporting on statistics in general, that a lot of the times they're reporting on things that non-scientists don't have strong intuitions about. Like, I wouldn't have known if 1.4 million is in the ballpark of the right number of people unemployed in the UK. So, so I have no idea what the uncertainty, what a good amount of uncertainty would be around that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it, it raises, I think to me that then raises questions about like, what, what do they mean by trust? Cause you know, I think rationally speaking, like if somebody occasionally gets small inconsequential things wrong, I'm not going to trust them less, but if they're giving me information that's making me make bad decisions, then that's going to implicate my trust in them a lot more. And, mm -hmm. you know, 
I think it, it's, um, yeah, in some, in some way they, they sort of, they picked a set of scenarios. They didn't have practical implications explicitly and they also didn't implicitly have like information that people would have sort of qualitatively made different conclusions in, in yeah. a lot of these studies. Um, It'd be interesting yeah. to do this with like nutrition or something where it's like, if you cut out eggs from your diet, you might yeah. add or subtract this many years from your expected lifespan. So something I know what I would do with that information if I trusted it. And I number of years extra or less in my life is like means something to me. I know what a year mm-hmm. is. Yeah. If somebody told me that um, not eating eggs would extend my lifespan for five years, I'm not sure that I would stop eating eggs. <laughs> Even if you trusted it. Yeah, I really like eggs. Is it five plus or minus one or five plus or minus ten? <laughs> exactly. Right, right. It, it might shorten it by fifteen years or lengthen it by ten. Yeah. I mean, one yeah, feeling I, I had when reading, re- reading this article was that I like, had all these ideas of variations they could do on the studies that I would love to do. And I yeah. thought, I think to me, that's a marker of a good article that like I can think of a lot more right. studies I would run around on this. And I also had this like very paradoxical feeling that on one hand, I was like, they should have varied things more. They should have used more different kinds of statistics and issues but then also the feeling that like they should have done direct obligations. Like why are mm-hmm. these all different from each other? And so I could see myself being that reviewer too, who was like, you should have done a and not a, and why didn't mm-hmm. you do <laughs> both of these contradictory things? Yeah, so right. I, I felt the reaction I sometimes have an author when <clears throat> someone does that and you're like, yeah, exactly. We should do all of this more and more direct thing- replications, more conceptual replications. Uh-huh. So I also wanted to ask oh. you, Maybe we're going to say the same thing, Sanjay. So I wanted to ask you, Samin, so you said that um, it's hard to know what you um, what to take away from the article or what it means for our, the way that we express uncertainty. And I feel like in the article, they're suggesting like, ah, now we can all relax and like we can express much more uncertainty and not be afraid of scaring people off. And so I was wondering, like, do you think that? And if you don't necessarily think you can conclude that from this article, what evidence you would want in order to draw that conclusion. Yeah, I mean, I think what makes me the most uncomfortable is the premise that whether or not we should go ahead right. and express the uncertainty we know is there depends on whether people lose trust in the finding or the source if we do express it. Like, I don't want it to rest on that. Right, That's right. great if, it, if, it, if we can all it's come nice. to the same conclusion, but I get there a different way than them. Like, at least we come to the same conclusion. Yes, we should express uncertainty. But to me, it's like we, were, we should express it anyway we should also study the effects of expressing it on trust, mm-hmm. but our decision to express it should not hinge on the effects on trust, but we may need to do other things if it turns out to damage trust and, and it shouldn't. But I think to me, it's putting the cart before the horse to assume that trust should be and stay high. Um, but so I do, you, I do think oh. their findings are pretty compelling that, that at least what I think their findings show is that it's possible to increase perceptions of uncertainty without decreasing trust in the source, which I think is an interesting demonstration, right? Mm-hmm. That like people are sophisticated enough to understand, oh, this isn't a sure, very sure thing at all. And also still think, yeah, it's the people who did this work did good work. And so I think that has, I think that's an important idea to at least explore the possibility that non-scientists can handle those two beliefs in, at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I think they do show that that is possible within the boundary conditions of their studies. So I mean, would, would you, so you, you, you said you come to the idea of communicating trust for more of like a principled place that we should just be transparent. Would you imagine a study that did have some way of calibrating the trust, let's say- The uncertainty? The, 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 the yeah, sorry, the uncertainty to how much you should trust or to, to something else. Um, so for example, like you're communicating uncertainty and you're looking at um, how it affects how people make a decision about some really important action. And let's say that that showed that communicating the uncertainty made them make more decision errors than if you didn't. Mm-hmm. Would you feel differently then? I think it would suggest that we need to communicate the uncertainty differently. Um, and I think you were going to raise this point at some point too about like the, there's different kinds of uncertainty. And so if if we're communicating it purely as a statistical thing, I could see why that might not be the clearest way to communicate it. And I think there might be ways to not get into all the details of like confidence intervals and ranges and stuff like that, but still convey 
how much confidence it's reasonable to have in this result based on everything, not just statistical <clears throat> uncertainty, but whether the design was similar to the context in which you're going to apply the finding, um, whether the reason there was any signs of bias in the way the study was done or reported and things like that. So I don't, I think sweeping uncertainty under the rug is almost never justified. Maybe you could come up with a scenario where I might go along with it in a very, very extreme circumstances. I actually, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, that's all. I was going to ask if you guys can imagine situations where you think that it would be the right move to um, express less uncertainty than you have, or for like a scientist to express less uncertainty than they have. Um, the The scenario that came to my mind first is maybe a situation where, and I'm sure we can think of examples of this. Um, I don't think this is a good one, but I'll just like throw it out there for like the sake of discussion, but a situation where um, somebody else is expressing a lot of certainty in something that you think is wrong and you have okay data to suggest that it's wrong, but you're, um, but you would exaggerate um, your certainty in your data. Um, so you're confident enough that this other person is wrong and you're right, but um, you could exaggerate the certainty that you have in your own finding um, because you're competing against what you think is bad advice given by someone else. So let me give a concrete example that, uh, um, and this is not about, and I do want to talk about sort of the, the really narrow definition of uncertainty in here um, because it is, it's just the statistical uncertainty and it's, it's, there's so much more, but anyway, let's, let's come to that back. Maybe if we have time, come back around to that, but here's a real world example that was fairly recent, which is the question of whether the general, public should be wearing masks exactly during the the pandemic and initially there was a lot of health communication that was conveying with a very high degree of certainty that no the public should not be wearing masks Mm -hmm. and um and what i think the the probably the my sense of the motivation for that was that Mm -hmm. they were very worried about shortages preserving the masks procedure masks yeah medically needed masks and and they were afraid people and, and but also the the evidence didn't support the general public wearing masks in particular right. didn't support them wearing them for their own protection um right. but then you know there started to be more discussion people said look the the evidence doesn't isn't absolute there's also the issue of the mask wearer being asymptomatic maybe or symptomatic and transmitting to others um but what happened was, and, and so I think the, the, you know, one of the criticisms was that they overstated, this was not like the numerical confidence interval kind of uncertainty. This was more like the, the quality of the evidence-based uncertainty, but they, they sort of overstated how, uh, um, uh, how, how certain they were um, in order to avoid a really bad outcome, which would have been right. a shortage. Mm-hmm. Um, but then what happened was it swung to like this high degree of certainty in the other direction. And, mm-hmm. and I've tweeted about this a couple of times and I always get people in my mentions being, you know, uh, um, t- telling me that, I, you know, it's, it, there's no cost to wearing homemade masks and all these other things. And, and I'm like, I've specifically tweeted about government policy making it mandatory. And there's, there are a lot of costs with that. There are, um, you know, and there, there are, born disproportionately by race and other kinds of of demographic factors that it's another reason for the police to hassle and and fine and arrest people and they're they're starting to emerge reports of Mm -hmm. you know people of color especially african americans getting hassled over wearing masks over not wearing masks etc um and and you know so it's one thing to like as a recommendation say hey if you want to do this for yourself we think it would be a really good idea it would it would there's probably very little downside and it might be helpful, but the science just isn't so definitive versus saying the science is so definitive that we should have a mandatory mask policy that we're going to fine and arrest people if they don't follow. Um, and, and so that, I mean, that was a, that's a case where like we swung from what certainty in one direction to certainty in the other, when I think the the evidence base just isn't there to support either one. It's probably, you know, where I land from having read these studies is it's probably a really good idea for most people to wear non-medical masks when they're out in public. Um, but that the, the potential costs of government mandated 
with teeth are there, there's not enough evidence to to go there yet. And I and real, real reasonable people can disagree, but like I just I think the this idea there was this article in Wired that said it was like a moral imperative for everyone to wear a mask. Um, you know, it was just just not that. To me, it makes sense that when if the original message was too extreme and too certain in one direction, that the correction is going to be an overcorrection. Like, I think that's one of the reasons not to exaggerate certainty yes. is that when people find out they, you misled them, whether you, whether that was intentional or not, you had an obligation to know that things were less certain to communicate that they're going to not trust you and then yeah. swing too far in the other direction. Absolutely. So I, think I think it was a strategic a short -term, mistake. Long-term yeah. thing. Like what, going back to your question, Alexa, about like, would it make sense or be justified to like exaggerate your certainty if you know the other side is being too certain and exaggerating mm -hmm. there? And I think in the short term, maybe it, it leads to the right behavior, but in the long term, I think it really backfires. Yeah, mm -hmm. you, you undermine your credibility for the future. And I think yeah. that, that was a really unfortunate thing was that the, you know, these health organizations that said, definitely it's not gonna help, don't do it because they were afraid of shortages. Yeah, they gave up their credibility when people started poking around at the data and saying, wait, you don't have enough data to be as certain as you're sounding. Mm -hmm. Right. I want to talk about this. So this, I mean, brought it up earlier, this issue of the different kinds of uncertainty, because this was something um, about this article. So it, it, at the beginning, it, it sort of, you know, in the introduction, it kind of talks about like this distinction between what they call epistemic uncertainty, which is uncertainty about what you know about mm -hmm. you know theories and methods and and all that kind of stuff, and then this other kind of predictive uncertainty about what's going to happen in the future, um, and they say we're going to focus on the epistemic kind, um, but then really all they focus on is these like statistical confidence intervals, and to me that there's that's like maybe the least large part of scientific <laughs> uncertainty. So like you know. Um, all these questions, like, were the methods mm -hmm. sound? We don't, how much uncertainty should there be about the soundness of the methods? How much uncertainty mm -hmm. should there be about whether the results from the sampled population generalize to the population mm -hmm. you're making recommendations to? How much, you know, so for example, um, if somebody does an observational study of the effect of an intervention, and then you're making a recommendation that presumes that it's causal, there's scientific uncertainty in there, but it's not quantifiable uncertainty in the sense of a confidence interval. If you say like, there's this observational study that says that, uh, um, you know, eating eggs will, you know, shorten your life or extend your life or whatever the latest study is. Um, and so we're going, that, that was just like a correlation in a data set, maybe with some covariates or whatever, but now we're gonna recommend it as an intervention that assumes causation there's uncertainty and you can, you can communicate the uncertainty. You can say, we got this recommendation from an observational study, but you can't really, it's really hard to quantify. Scientists will disagree with each other. There is no right answer about how much uncertainty is there. It's not like a confidence interval where you can calculate it. Um, that seems much more challenging to communicate. And I think most instances of scientists wanting to communicate with policymakers and with the public are that kind of uncertainty, maybe in addition to the confidence interval kind of uncertainty. But I think most of the time it's, it's the uncertainty about how strong is the evidence, yeah. how relevant is it to the problem at hand. And I think this explains a bit why in psychology, at least we're having these arguments and somewhat talking past each other when we talk about whether um, like your typical basic psychology finding is ready to be turned into an op-ed mm -hmm. or policy or things like that is because I think right. the people who are for it and saying something is better than nothing are basically assuming that the only kind of uncertainty is a matter of precision, statistical precision. Right. Whereas I think the people who are saying, no, 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 it might not be ready. It might actually harm, do harm to communicate it is are saying, we're not sure about the design. We're not sure we're measuring what we're actually measuring. We're not sure that it's appropriate to make causal inferences. We're not sure that there's not a ton of bias in the process mm -hmm. that produced these findings include not just the authors, but the, whole scientific ecosystem that produces these findings. And so it really matters. If you think it's just a matter of precision, then absolutely something is better than nothing, right? Like if right. all the other kinds of uncertainty are erased, then go with your point estimate because what else are you going to do? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So I think it really matters what kind of uncertainty we're talking about. I was thinking about that too with Sanjay's example. So like, yeah, I mean, if it's an effect like the masks thing that can plausibly be like, quite plausibly be reversed, um, then there is a big risk in telling people um, you should do A when it's like possible that in reality you should not do A, right? Um, I was thinking about when I was thinking about times when it might be you, it might be defensible to hide some of the uncertainty. I was thinking about some of the like social distancing recommendations where it's harder to imagine like the effect reversing, like um, actually like, you know, you're in more danger if you are within six feet or something like that. I mean, you could talk about other costs of course, but um, of social distancing, but you can probably safely say like, it's better to be six feet apart than closer than that. Right. Um, so but yeah, I think that often the um, claims that we make, especially as like social and personality psychologists, where um, we're generally like trying to tell the public something that they don't already know is like either we could be saying that something exists when nothing exists, or often we could be saying that that something has one effect when in many cases in um, the real world, it has the opposite effect. Um, so there's, I think, a lot of risk there. Um, and it, as you say, it goes beyond just the confidence interval, right? So for like a specific study, maybe maybe you can get a really precise effect size estimate for those that specific operationalization. But if you change one aspect of the design, maybe you get a totally different effect. Um, and so, I mean, take this study, for instance, right? Um, you could imagine um, changing parameters a lot where you might get like a really big effect of... Um, communicated uncertainty on distrust of the source. Um, and potentially, I think, if you use the right materials, you might get an effect of um, expressing uncertainty, getting you some credibility. Um, so, yeah, I mean. Yeah, I yeah. there was yeah. a paper we did a, a few episodes back, uh, the Psych Bull paper about how design choices affect not mm -hmm. just the strength right, but sometimes right. the direction of the results right. um, yeah, for the same right. broad conceptual hypothesis that's a really I think good example of how you know it's it's not just imprecision it's that there can be systematic factors that that could be affected by the researchers biases yeah. I also think you know the the one of the problems of communicating too much certainty or not enough uncertainty is that to a decision maker you know the more they're, when you come to them with the mantle of science and saying this is a science-based recommendation, the more they weight that, the more you convince them to weight that, to assign weight to that, the less weight they're assigning to everything else they otherwise would have used. And sometimes those other things are really important. So, you know, one of the things that people might otherwise rely on is the first hand of experience of the people who are going to be affected by this or who have first hand experience of, of whatever it is that you're asking them to do. And I mean, there's a long history of bad interventions being done on usually marginalized groups that are saying, no, this isn't working, this is hurting us. And, you know, people saying, well, no, but you know, this is, this is what we're going to do to you. Um, and, and, you know, we like to think that like scientific evidence is the best evidence and that's all just anecdotal, but sometimes people's mm -hmm. experience has access to information that's not part of the scientific model or recommendation because you haven't talked to the right people or asked the right questions. Um, so that's, you know, that, that decision, it's not just a harmless decision to say like, hey, you know, something's better than nothing from science because something from science is less of something else. And if that's, you know, people's first-hand knowledge and experience, then you're telling them to wait that less, or you're telling somebody to wait somebody else's experience less a lot of times. And what makes science more useful than other things in these contexts is that we don't accept just some things better than nothing, or it's a shot in the dark and we have no other option, right? The whole point mm -hmm. is that we have standards and that we try to calibrate our confidence to like how good the evidence is and things like that. So if we're gonna justify, well, sure, it's a shot in the dark, but what's the harm? It's like, okay, but then you have to get in line with all the other people who have shots right. in the dark too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Imagine, imagine writing that in your cover letter to a journal. Look, nobody's yeah. studied this before and something's better than nothing. So you have to publish <laughs> this study. 
like yeah. that. <laughs> Nobody would ever think of making that argument there, um, you know, but yeah, all of a sudden. And we, I also think, I mean, that. when you bring in all those other sources of epistemic uncertainty that you yeah. mentioned, I'm not sure something's better than nothing. Like, I right. think we're closer to shot in the dark than to something is better than nothing. And uh, yeah, so then it's, we need to raise our standards before we can, we say this is different than what all those cranks and pseudoscientists are, are putting out there. It needs to be at least the, like, we're pretty sure we're down to just statistical uncertainty and this is a reliable effect. And then, but yeah, anyway, mm-hmm. can I bring up a couple other points specifically about the paper? I think the conceptual stuff is really interesting, but I would, it would be hard for me to get off this call without making a couple of points specifically about the paper that I would have raised, I think, if I was a reviewer. Go ahead. One is like relatively straightforward, which is just that so much of their conclusion rests on absence, uh, evidence of absence yeah. and null effect, no differences. And they don't do equivalence tests. I mean, they, they report confidence intervals and they do a sensitivity power analysis, but I would have liked more explicit testing of the null or something a small, an effect size too small to be practically significant. I think they do have enough evidence that I would be convinced, but I would have liked them to frame it that way instead of so much emphasis on p-values and non-significance. And then the other one I think is a little more complicated is that a lot of their conclusion is about numerical versus verbal uncertainty, but I'm not sure you can compare those effect sizes because you'd have to match the verbal to be the same magnitude as the numerical. And they have one sentence with on page on the third page of the PDF well, they say the verbal phrases were chosen to mirror the magnitude of the numerical uncertainty. And I have to confess, I didn't look at all the fine print and supplemental materials and stuff. So I don't know how they did that. But intuitively, I didn't find, feel that, that there was a match. Like in the first study, the numerical range was one, the point estimate was 1.4 million, 1.48 million. And the range was 1.41 to 1.55 million. Yeah. And the verbal was, the report states there is some uncertainty around this estimate. It could be somewhat higher or lower. Yeah, I would never have thought me, somewhat higher or lower would be like that tight of a range. Yeah. You when know? I read that, I was like, there, um, those things are like totally different scale. Like to me, the, so not just like what is like somewhat in numerical terms, but, mm-hmm. but giving a numerical range is inherently feels like more precise than saying right. somewhat higher or lower. Right. Like, right. Yeah, I wonder. Oh, that could if, be I think it's effect, hard to match right? those That could things. be the point that like verbal uncertainty has a bigger effect on their perceptions and trust and so on, partly because it's less sciencey. So like yeah. it's possible that adding numerical uncertainty actually there's there's a an effect in which it makes people trust less because you're adding uncertainty, but there's an effect in which people trust more because it sounds more sciencey. Now you have plus or minus, you have symbols and you have more numbers. But I I didn't understand quite how you could make a general statement about verbal versus numerical when I guess if you tried a lot of different verbal phrases and a bunch of numerical and it was consistently the case that you got bigger effects. Right. I also think if they said, I was just going to say, if they said like it could be a tiny bit higher or lower than this. And you still do it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that the verbal uncertainty, I mean, it would be really interesting to debrief subjects about this to me that at least opens up the door to explanations besides sampling error, which is what the numerical is. Yeah. And so it, it opens right. the door, I don't know, it would be interesting to see if subjects were thinking of these other kinds of epistemic. When you say, I'm not quite yeah. sure about this estimate, does that, do people start thinking, oh, you're, you, maybe you have some doubt about your methods or your whatever. Right, maybe you didn't measure what you thought you were measuring. Yeah, yeah. Very different than, yeah. yeah, I mean, this gets back to our original point then, because they make the recommendation to use numerical uncertainty because it doesn't have these negative effects on trust, whereas verbal kind of does. But maybe actually that's a sign that verbal is better because <laughs> it like produces a more global sense of, unsureness or uneasiness which maybe is more appropriate i mean it really depends if you really had like a very very good design and no eliminated all sources of bias and really it was just about statistical precision then go with numeric but if you want to convey that there are other reasons too to be unsure then maybe verbal is better well this is i mean this reminds me of all of the discussion about the santa clara um you know covid19 prevalence study and how like they have these confidence intervals, but, uh, and, and some of this could have been numeric, right? But so like the whole study was premised on an assumption about the specificity of the test. And if you start monkeying with the specificity, the numbers completely blow up and, and change. 
And so you can get a totally different point estimate and confidence interval if you change the specificity or if you turn the specificity itself into something that's that that's a random variable instead of a fixed one. Um, and so, you know, it just, yeah, it, it just kind of opens up these like, you know, a lot of times the uncertainty is more than just the numerical estimate. And yeah, and, and I mean, this is just back to what we said before that like, right, maybe the correct calibration to reality is the verbal one and, and both of the other two are overconfident. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I also think that this paper is quite optimistic in that it frames it as being like, okay, we know what the uncertainty is now, how should we communicate it or whether we should communicate it. But I think actually the challenge is bigger than that, which is getting the researchers themselves to appreciate all the sources of uncertainty and the magnitude of the uncertainty and then communicate it. But I'm not sure it's just a matter of communication. And then I think there's the additional challenge of like fully communicating the uncertainty, right? So like, um, do people like fully appreciate what a wide confidence interval means? Or like when you're communicating a finding, can people like fully grasp the, um, how much they should really like buy a finding when there's like uncertainty about generalizability, when there's uncertainty about the effect size, when there's uncertainty about validity, like et cetera, et cetera. Um, so here's, here's the question for you, Samin, to wrap all, maybe this wraps all this up, which is, you think scientists should be doing more to communicate uncertainty. You have reservations about this paper's definitions and methods and the premise by which it reaches the same conclusion as you. Are you going to cite this paper? <laughs> I would definitely, it's definitely up to the standards where I would cite it. I think that it, yeah, I think I would cite it for a narrow claim that you can get results you know, especially, I mean, I think mm -hmm. the four vignette studies are more e easy to interpret than the field experiment. And so the four vignette studies suggest you can create stimuli such that people appreciate statistical uncertainty and don't lose trust in the source. So I feel like I could cite it for that claim. And also uh, there's a couple other interesting bits in there that I could imagine citing it for, like calling something an estimate or saying it's about 100,000 does nothing. <laughs> like you might as well leave out those caveats. Hmm. Um, which I think is really important for scientists and journalists to appreciate that you have to do a lot more to convey uncertainty, probably. Cool. So yeah, I think, yeah, I think this paper is a good example of like, there can be a lot of relatively things I'm, I feel relatively confident about taking from a study, but it's still really narrow. And so if I was going to make a claim like scientists can, can rest easy communicating uncertainty, it's not going to affect trust that would be way too broad of a claim to make based on these studies. Cool. Well, I think, I think we're about out of time, approximately out of time, plus or minus 7.3 <laughs> minutes. Uh, <laughs> anyone have any closing thoughts or should we wrap it up? I'm out. I'm All good. right. All right, cool. Well, thank you listeners for listening to The Black Goat and we'll talk to you next time. 